Well, good morning. Peace be with you. Hope you've had a great week. Uh, the week before last, uh, Joseph and I drove to New York City, which I think some of you know. Uh, as it turns out, that is a long drive, very long drive. Uh, but I did get to listen to a uh, podcast that I really enjoyed, This Cultural Moment. If you've heard of that, it's about following Jesus in a, a post-Christian society. What does it look like in the sort of secular culture we're in now uh, to follow the Lord? And we've talked about this before, that we, we are in this sort of post-Christian uh, time where the culture is no longer dominated by Christian thought and Christian morality and, and ethics, but it's now a, a new sort of uh, secular religion, even a, a secularism that has uh, its own set of, of laws, things you can say, things you can't say. Um, and, and this is just an aside, but I realized how secular New York City is when I went to the Chick-fil-A. Because you've been to the Chick-fil-A here or anywhere else where they're just like over the top courteous, like it's way too much. They're like, how can I serve you today? It would be my pleasure to serve you. Peace be with you. New York, they're like, what do you want? <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. So we order and I say thanks. And there's no like, it was my pleasure. Nothing like that. It was just like, next. It's like, my goodness, things are changing secular here. Um, but everywhere it's like this. And, and the podcast uh, kind of clarified something for me that I, I had a hard time putting into words, but they, they talked about how the dominant spirit of our age is uh, one of, of critique or, or criticism, uh, deconstruction, a, a pulling apart of, of things. Uh, and so it's no longer that, that people in our society just say, I don't agree with that, or that's not how I would do it, but now it's, that's wrong you know, uh, that's, that's just definitively wrong if it's not my own viewpoint. And you see this all over, you know, in cable news channels, there's uh, each side is sort of blasting each other's political figures or candidates over something they said, and it's a, it's a picking apart, a pulling apart. Uh, now, in some cases, somebody really does, you know, this doesn't discount people who say things that are just flat out wrong, like when the president allows for a racist chant, like that's just flat out wrong. But for the most part, uh, what's going on back and forth is is just sort of a, a disagreement that's been been elevated to the place of of criticism, of of deconstruction, pulling apart. Uh, social media is a place where you can critique and deconstruct, disconnected from relationships, and it's it's like we're we're all food critics and and nobody's a chef. You know, that's that's the sense that I get. Nobody's really cooking anymore. We're just critiquing other people's food. Uh, and I, I do this too. So I, even as I describe this, I'm like, you know what I'm so sick of? Critique and criticism and deconstruction. I hate it. Let's pull it apart. Uh, but I think it's in all of us, and it's, it exists even in our, our everyday conversation. So we say our, our coworkers, uh, you know, they're, they're just awful people. They, they gossip all the time. Or, you know, you wouldn't believe what my spouse said the other day. They, you know, they can't get anything right. Uh, the church down the street, they don't, they don't do this well. They, you know, they're getting it all wrong. Uh, and we, I don't think we realize how much we, uh, we have this in us, even in the church. And when I was writing this introduction, I, uh, I wrote a sentence that was something to the effect of like this, this spirit of criticism is so common in our age that it's, it's even seeping into our hearts. But then when I looked at it, I realized it's, it's kind of the opposite that's true that the spirit of critique is so deep in our own hearts that it's, it's seeping out into the world. Uh, and I don't, I don't think we need to be afraid of saying that it's, it's within us too. Uh, and, and this morning as we come to 
can continue in this series, enjoying God. What we're coming to this morning is God's mercy and his grace. Uh, and, and what we see is that God is just totally different from the way our world operates in this way. Now, God is, is the ultimate creator. He's not the ultimate critic. And we know it is, it is far easier to tear something down than it is to build something up. It's far easier to condemn somebody than it is to actually listen to them, far easier than actually forgiving them. It's a lot easier to pull a person apart than it is to put a person back together. And then we look to God and we see that God is forgiving. He's just, he's merciful, he's graceful, he's loving, he's wise. And when I look at my own heart, I see uh, so much just a sort of general snarkiness. You know, there's all different types of intelligence in the world. There's like, you know, people that are like strategically intelligent, people that are creatively intelligent. I feel like my greatest intelligence is just like snarky humor. And as I grow in the Lord, I can't use any of it. It's just like I have all these great, just great like burns in my mind. And I'm like, oh, I'm going to just bury them. I wish I had another form of intelligence. But as I look to my own heart, I realize the only way that I can be a life-giving person and not like a, a cranky, critical person, is if, if God's mercy and grace continues to renew my heart. Like it has to be operating over and over and over to renew me from the inside out. And so today I want to look at why we need grace and mercy, how we get it, and then how to enjoy it. So first of all, why we need grace and mercy. Uh, our passage begins just right out of the gate, verse 1, that we are dead in our sin apart from Christ. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. And so this is not a flattering start to Ephesians, Ephesians 2, but, but it, is, it is in touch with reality. It is true that apart from Christ, we are, we are born into sin. We are, we are one with sin. And simply by following the, the ways of the world, we are falling in line with the, the ruler of the kingdom of the air. It's, it's the devil himself that has this very real and invisible kingdom, but a very real one. And, and he is the king of, of sorts of this, this evil kingdom. And it says that his, his reign is uh, like the air. It's as pervasive in the world as air is. And Paul writes, all of us also lived among them at one time. We were all dead in our sin before Christ. Uh, Jesse and I saw a movie at Ragtag a couple weeks ago. It was Bill Murray. It was a zombie movie. So that's all we knew going into it. But it was like Bill Murray and zombies. It'll be good enough. And it was fine. Um, but there's a character in it that anytime somebody says that they're dead, he's like, well, technically they're not dead. They're the undead. Uh, so even in zombie movies, people are correcting each other. Uh, but this is essentially how we are apart from Christ. We're, we're the walking dead. We're, we're dead in our sin, even though we continue to live. And so what we need from grace and mercy is not a tweak. It's not an improvement of something. It's, it's a resurrection. It's an entirely new life. It's not a step-by-step -step transformation, but it's an entirely new heart. And what Paul is saying is that apart from God's mercy and grace... We're not just oblivious to it. We're not just oblivious or, or we're not just uh, neglecting mercy and grace. We're actually opposed to it. 
And instead, what, what we do is we, we find these replacements for grace and mercy. And, and these replacements act as, as like enemies to grace and mercy. And the first one is performance. And we live in a, in a culture of performance where, where we say, I can do it on my own. I can, I can take care of myself. I can pull myself together. I can improve myself. And it starts from early age, trying to get into the right preschool, getting the right grades in school, getting into the right college, having the right resume. Even our, our entertainment, it's, it's all performance-based, whether it's pro sports or, or the voice. Like there is always a winner and always a loser. And the second enemy of, of grace and mercy is like performance's little brother, but it's comparison. So when you buy into this mindset of, of performing, that you have to do better, that you have to get it right, that brings in comparison, which is where am I in relation to all other people? You may not want to be the best, but, but most of us want to be just a little bit better than average or at least a little bit better than, than the next guy. But comparison is, has been said to be the thief of joy. You can't experience any joy when you're trying to figure out where you rank in relation to other people. If other people are, are competitors, then you can't, you can't actually love them. You can't actually serve them. They can't actually be your friends. And I have this so so deep within me. I've joked before I was uh, with my sister who lives in Chicago and she was telling us about this new board game that they've been playing with their friends and she's like, it's great, Uh, you know, it's a trivia game, you really get to know one another, there's no winner, but it's this, you know, it's a great time together. And I'm thinking, what is the point of a game where there's no winner? It just does not make sense to me that you would play a game for hours and not know who has won and who goes home embarrassed and ashamed that they didn't win. I don't get it at all. Performance is like this, this drug that we've been ingesting uh, from the time that we're born. And we look at that and says, how, how, how have we carried that over into our relationship with God? How have we taken a sense of, of performance and comparison into our walk with the Lord so that we think we, we need to pull it together, we need to get it right? We need to be a little bit better than the next guy. And so that brings us to the second thing, which is how we actually get grace and mercy. If we're actually in our sin opposed to grace and mercy, how does it come to us? Verse 4, it says, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. And so it's into this this world of critique and um, destruction, deconstruction, performance, comparison that God literally speaks a new word. First, it's the word grace, which in the the Greek New Testament is is charis, C-H-A-R-I-S. And it's, it's a Greek word that wasn't used in Greek up until the time of Christianity. Uh, like agape, the word, the Christian word for love. It was a word that didn't exist in, in Greek literature apart from the Christian language. God is literally bringing a new form of life, a new word, a new language into our lives by bringing his grace and mercy to us. And so God's grace in a biblical sense is that we are loved and accepted, not just in uh, opposite of what we have earned, but actually getting the, the opposite of what we've earned. So not just that we haven't earned grace and love, but we've actually earned the opposite of grace and love, and yet God loves us anyways. And so many times when Paul is talking about mercy or grace, they're, they're right there together. 
And so he says, God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love, has saved you, and it's by grace you have been saved. So he continues lumping together all these attributes of God to show us what God is like. And it's a God in, in the scriptures. Um, essentially what mercy is, is getting what we don't deserve, or not getting what we do deserve. So mercy is not getting what we deserve, and then grace is getting what we don't deserve. So in both cases, God is giving us something far better than we have deserved. And we take these two things together, we're getting God's, what I've been calling his mercy grace. How mercy and grace come together in our lives to not only wipe away the sin that stands against us, but also brings us into a new life of righteousness. So it's not simply that our sin has been removed from us and now we have to earn our way into favor with God or perform our way into God's good standing, but it's that God, the sin has been removed and something entirely new has been given in its place, and that's Christ's righteousness. So that even our growth in Christ is entirely by grace. And so it's by God's mercy grace that we are loved. It's by his mercy grace that we're forgiven, by his mercy grace that we're made one with Christ, by his mercy grace that we have eternal life with Christ. And I think this is one of the biggest things I've learned in, in uh, this study this, this summer and looking at God's attributes is that as soon as you look into one, you get to another one. And I start to feel like all my sermons are just overlapping and sounding exactly the same because as soon as you get into one attribute, you get into all the other attributes. And so it's like all the attributes are a, a door into the same room, the, the throne room as it, as it is. And so all these different attributes, you press into one and you get another. So we've looked at God's glory, and that leads us directly into God's justice. And as soon as you look at God's justice, you discover God's mercy. And when we look at God's mercy, we discover his grace. When we discover his grace, we find his abundant love for us. And when we see his love, then we're reminded of God's faithfulness. And when we see God's faithfulness, we know it can only be because of his divine power. And we look at his divine power, we see that it's matched with his perfect wisdom. And we look at his wisdom and we find his glory and it just keeps going around and around again. And so the question is, if grace is in line with God's character and mercy is in line with his character, how does it fit with all the other attributes? How does it fit with justice, which is getting what we do deserve? In Romans 11, it says, consider therefore the kindness and severity of God. Severity to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And so this is a hard word, but I think it's important to, to discuss when we're thinking about mercy, especially in the context of justice, which we looked at last week, that Paul writes of a, a severity of God, a, a severeness. And he says that those who don't turn to the Lord will at some point be cut off. That God's mercy is, is incredible, that the, the grace that he offers to us is abundant, but there is a point where that grace and mercy will be removed if somebody hasn't turned toward him. Every demonstration of divine mercy and grace is also a warning in severity. So that somebody can't say that they'll simply turn and receive God's mercy later some other time because there comes a point, Paul says, that it is no longer offered. And this is consistent with who God is. Exodus 34 says, The Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love, 
faithful, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. And so if both are true, if he's abounding in this mercy grace, and he also holds the the wicked or the rebellious to the sins that they have committed if they don't turn to him, the burning question becomes, how do, we, how do we get God's mercy and grace in a way that's consistent with his justice? Because if all we get from God is his justice, then we get what we deserve, which is to remain in our sin. And if that's the case, then God doesn't get to display his mercy and grace into the world. And so he doesn't receive the glory from his creatures that he's due. And if we remain in our sin, obviously, we are not one with God. The only way we can get God's mercy and grace in line with his justice, in line with all of his other attributes, is if he takes on himself the penalty for our sin. If we take on the penalty ourselves, then he cannot demonstrate his mercy. But if he takes it on himself, then he can be just in condemning sin and yet merciful towards us as well. Verse 8, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. This means our entire salvation is is completely by grace. Our entire growth in Christ is completely by grace. And this leaves no room for bragging if we know that we were dead in our sins apart from Christ coming into our lives, apart from Christ's resurrection and then resurrecting us as well. It means we have absolutely no room to boast. We have no room to look down on on anyone else, no matter how much sin they are in, because we know that everybody apart from Christ is dead in sin. But the thing that's better than being able to boast is being able to celebrate. When you receive grace, you can celebrate. If you've earned something, if if you've beat somebody out for something, it's a, it's a different sort of prideful celebration, but when you simply receive a gift, when, you know, even if it's just your birthday and all you're doing is being on the receiving end of something, it's so much easier to celebrate. That's what Paul's saying. We, we haven't earned anything, and yet we have received what we most need. And so when the scriptures talk about grace, it uses all of these illustrations, a, a prodigal being received back by his father. Riches being discovered in a field, a, a party where the guest list includes the homeless, the outcasts, the poor, the, the have-nots. Salvation is almost always described as some sort of party or celebration in Jesus' parables. And so the only way to get grace and mercy is by going to Christ and receiving his death in our place and receiving his resurrection as well. And so the last thing is, how do we enjoy this? Now that we know that we have God's mercy and his grace, how do we actually enjoy it? How do, we, how do we live a life of joy and peace as a result of his grace and mercy? And the first thing is to be transformed. As I've said, God's abundant mercy, grace, it doesn't just apply to us once and then we have to perform from then on, but it, it continues to uphold us and transform us. Verse 10, right after saying that everything has been done by grace, Paul says, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. 
And so if you see these two things that Paul holds together, that you've been saved entirely by grace, and he says twice, it's not a result of what you have done, and yet on the other hand, you were created to do good. And the only way those two things can be true at the same time is if Christ actually changes us from the inside out so that we're not doing good to, to be saved or to get right with God, but now that we are saved and are right with God, now we genuinely want to be good and we do good that we were created to do. Grace comes to us as we are, but it never leaves us there. It saves us, but it also makes us. It makes us into a people that live and, and breathe grace, not critique. It makes us a people who walk in the way of love and not performance. Grace makes us able to, to know and, and serve our neighbors, not just sort of hide on our, our smartphones and in our technology. Grace gives us a posture of humility in the workplace, rejecting the, the game of comparison that always exists. Grace makes us a people that can serve the marginalized, because we know that we are one who has been raised by another. And so first of all, be transformed. And second of all, this, this is even how to be transformed. But second, put yourself in the path of mercy. I found it interesting so often in the Gospels when Jesus is walking with his disciples, somebody like gets in his way. Have you noticed that? So many of the the interactions, the encounters start with somebody just literally getting in Jesus's way, like on the path. Uh, so somebody comes up and throws themselves down at his feet. They, they're in a tree, you know, as, as he's passing by, but they literally just get in Jesus's way. So he has to, he has to shower them with his grace and mercy. And I think this is a perfect picture for our, our relationship with God. That we are his children we don't have to do anything to earn his love, to, to prove ourselves to him. But just like a child does, coming before his father or mother, this is the posture that we can take. We put ourselves in the way of Christ. Lamentations, uh, which is a fairly depressing book, like if the Bible is a song, song book, this is the one that's like, you know, Elliot Smith or Iron, Iron and Wine, something like that. Lamentations 3, though, breaks into this incredible announcement of good news and the prophet jeremiah says the steadfast love of the lord never ceases his mercies never come to an end and so think about this as you think about putting yourself in the path of god it says his mercies never come to an end they are new every morning great is your faithfulness the lord is my portion says my soul therefore i will hope in him and so if the mercies of God are new every single morning, then every single morning we put ourselves in his path. We, we get ourselves in his way so that he sees us and we know that he can always see us. But it's this posture of coming before him, of getting in front of him and, and spending time with him, whether it's, it's getting up early and, and taking an extra 15 minutes to, to open the scriptures, to pray, to journal, or just simply to sit in the Lord's presence learning how to, how to listen, how to be silent, how to, how to receive from him. It can even be as simple as just, just showing up, just showing up to church, showing up to group, showing up in relationships. All of those things are putting ourselves in the path of God where his, his fresh everyday mercies can come into our lives. Over and over, the, the scriptures show us that 
the growth in Christ, it's, it's not rocket science. There's nothing mysterious. There's nothing uh, incredibly, you know, complex about it. It's simply putting ourselves in the way of God, a childlike faith, going back to the Father over and over and over. And this great hymn says it best, I think. Not the labor of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. Nothing in my hands to bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Let's pray.